So Stephen Clark runs um, a lot of things around here. And this week, uh, <clears throat> when we needed to line up a reader for the first scripture reading, I said, Stephen, you got to get like our strongest reader, like all these very, very strange names in there. And wow, Susan Kale like powered through those. I was a, that was like, I, I was very impressed that, you know, and you know, the trick is when you're reading those weird foreign names is you just say it boldly, even if it's wrong, but she got them all right. So like, uh, it, it, I was doubly impressed. Our second reading this morning will be much easier to understand. Uh, it begins uh, in verse 17 of that same chapter, chapter 16 of Romans. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius who is host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Cordus, greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So here we are, at last, at the final sermon in our series of sermons through the book of Romans. I don't know how you feel about that. I'm feeling a little sad to tell you the truth. We have worked relentlessly through this book since the first Sunday of 2018. Even our guest preachers in these past two years, the Reverend Christy Bruce and the Reverend Ian Clark and Elder Stephen Clark, they didn't deviate from the scripture text in Romans either, each week picking up where I had left off so that the momentum of this series hasn't been lost. But all good things must come to an end, at least this side of the Jordan River, all good things must come to an end. And so this week, we come to Romans chapter 16 where the Apostle Paul offers some final greetings, some final instructions, and some final words of blessing. Now maybe some of you have also noticed that today is Mother's Day, 
And so maybe you're thinking that this is going to be a Mother's Day sermon, but those of you who know me know that I'm not a big fan of Hallmark holidays, particularly Hallmark holidays that inject themselves into a Christian worship of service, service of worship. There's something wrong when the secular world dictates to the church what it's doing on a Sunday morning. We have to draw lines. Everyone loves Groundhog Day. And National Bacon Week deserves our attention. But if I start mentioning Punxsutawney Phil and BLTs in my pastoral prayer, there needs to be an outcry from the congregation. My preaching practice is called Lectio Continua, or Continuous Reading. That means I preach straight through whole books of the Bible at a time. And whatever the text might be that we're hitting in a particular week, the topic of that text is what I have to preach on. If the text is talking about women covering their heads in worship, that's what we're going to preach on. If the text talks about children obeying their parents, that's what we'll preach on. If the text talks about tithing, that's what we'll preach on. That's what I've done for the past 14 years. And providentially, God has always brought us the message that we've needed week by week. When we trust the topic of to the scripture text rather than to the whim of the preacher. And so I hope all of you see God's providential care this morning when on Mother's Day we find ourselves dealing with a text that mentions no fewer than nine mothers. In this closing section of this letter, Paul offers a shout-out to 26 people in the Roman church, and nine of these are women, more than one-third. And if you're thinking, what's the big deal about that? Surely the church in Rome was at least 50% women. Then consider for just a second that the Congress of this self-congratulatory era of wokeness is still less than one quarter women. You understand what that means? It means that the Roman church 2,000 years ago was more female friendly, more female supportive, more female honoring than the electorate of the United States in the 21st century. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. With very few exceptions, throughout history... And in cultures all around the globe, women have had less power than men. And because they've had less power, they've had less control over their lives, over their bodies, over their families, and over their communities than men have had. Women have more often been invisible and hidden from public view. Women have had less access to education and to the levers of public power. And women often have not had, and in many places even today still do not have, the same rights of free movement, of free speech, and of property ownership that men have. Small wonder then that one of the Jewish morning prayers reads this way, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who hast not made me a heathen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who hast not made me a slave. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who hast not made me a woman. 
Please don't misunderstand me. I am not endorsing that prayer. That is not a biblical prayer. But it does reflect a deep and a wide attitude that our mothers and our sisters and our daughters regularly face. Thank God I'm not a woman. So what do we make of this state of affairs? When you look around you and you see things that are not the way they are supposed to be, you have a clue that you are living in a fallen world. Cornelius Plantinga, who taught at Calvin Theological Seminary for nearly 30 years, has a brilliant little book titled, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a Breviary of Sin. Not everything is, not everything that is, is the way that it's supposed to be. Just because something is common, or even universal, doesn't mean that we can point at that state of affairs and say, that's the will of God. That's what it means to live in a fallen world. Not everything that is, is the way it's supposed to be. Sickness and death. They're part of the fall. Indifference and injustice, they're part of the fall. The systematic disregard for and subjugation of women, they're part of the fall too. Just because something is common or even universal does not mean that it is part of God's plan. This is a very important principle to grasp. Common things, even universal things, may be part of the fall rather than being part of God's plan for creation. So where do we discover God's will, God's plan for creation, if not by looking at the world around us? Well, we look in the pages of Scripture. What we learn from Scripture is that the systematic disregard for and subjugation of women, which have been common as dirt, throughout history and around the globe, are not part of God's plan, but rather are signs of the fall. And as the will of God advances, the signs of the fall begin to retreat. Just as when the sun rises, the shadows disappear. Let me give you five milestones, five, in the biblical history of God's plan for women. We'll begin at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Milestone number one. On the sixth day of creation, God says, let us make mankind in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Humans are the pinnacle of creation. God gave us dominion over all of earth's creatures and we alone of all the millions of species that God created, we alone are made in the image and the likeness of God. And then there is this interesting little tag that's added to the description of humankind. Male and female, he created them. Two kinds. Two subspecies, you might say. Of the human race, a, a, a binary pair. 
created by God, not a social construct, but divine fiat. God who can do anything, any way he wants, chose by his sovereign will to create a binary pair of humans, male and female. Those are the two options. In creation, male and female are presented side by side as twin manifestations of the image of God. And while they are twins, they are also made for each other so that together one man and one woman form something new, something special, which the Bible calls one flesh. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, And they, the man and the woman, shall become one flesh. So in the beginning, the woman is half of a unique pair of twins, each each twin equally presenting the image of God, and both twins designed to be conjoined in a mysterious union called one flesh. That's where things start. Well, if you've read Genesis... Or if you've read the newspaper, you know that things kind of go downhill after Eden. So let me bring you to milestone number two. Genesis chapter three describes the fall and it lists a series of consequences or curses for the sin of humankind. Pain in childbirth, eating bread by the sweat of our brows, And then in verse 16, we read this interesting and perhaps controversial line where God speaks to Eve and says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. The footnote in the ESV study Bible, a commentary which takes a decidedly complementarian perspective on male-female relations, says this, These words from the Lord indicate that there will be an ongoing struggle between women, uh, between the woman and the man for leadership in the marriage relationship. Well, that's an understatement. The struggle between men and women is legendary. And it's not just leadership in marriage, but in every area of life. And this struggle has been the butt of jokes for all of recorded history from the Greek comedies of Aristophanes four centuries before Jesus, right up to whatever sitcom you were watching last night on the tube. This struggle is part of the human condition. But Scripture indicates that this struggle for dominance, with women having desires contrary to their husbands, and husbands ruling over their wives, that this struggle for dominance is not part of God's plan for creation, but is rather a consequence of the fall and a sign that things have gone haywire, like pain in childbirth. Like thorns and thistles infesting the ground, like eating the bread by the sweat of our brows. This dominance, this struggle for dominance is not how things were supposed to be, to use planning as phrase. But as soon as the fall happens and the curse is pronounced by God, we have what we call the proto-evangelium, the first hint of the salvation that God will offer 
A salvation that will correct and roll back the consequences of the fall. The proto-evangelium appears in verse 15 where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a foreshadowing of the final showdown between Jesus and Satan at Calvary. Things really do change after Calvary. We'll get to that in a minute. But even before we get to Calvary, we see already in the garden, God at work relieving, alleviating the suffering that's been brought on humankind by the fall. Adam and Eve, you'll recall, discover that they're naked. What do they do? They sew fig leaves together. What does God do? God makes them clothes out of animal skins. A baby step toward making their lives a little bit better in spite of the fall. Milestone number three. A big step forward in relieving the trouble caused by the fall was the law that God gave to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. God gives the law to restrain evil and to guide people into the right way of living. And part of that law is this command and this threat. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Don't mess with God. God threatens holy hell against anyone who dares afflict the helpless woman or the helpless child. God is the defender of the weak. And who is more vulnerable than a widow or an orphan? No one is easier to take advantage of. No one is easier to abuse because they have no one to defend them. They have no family. Keep in mind... God never says, thou shalt not, unless we are doing precisely the thing that he tells us not to do. God gives this law to not afflict defenseless women and children because people were afflicting defenseless women and children. And by people, I mean men. Men who had access to the power. God's law is a redeeming step that pushes back the consequences of the fall. And part of that pushback is protecting women in a world that otherwise doesn't give them much regard. Now, let's fast forward to the New Testament where things change dramatically. Milestone number four. On the day of Pentecost... The Apostle Peter preaches the very first Christian sermon. He preaches it on the streets of Jerusalem. And the text that he preached from was from the prophet Joel. The prophet Joel who foresaw the coming of the Messiah and declared this. In the last days it shall be that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, 
And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirits, and they shall prophesy. What the prophet Joel tells us is that when Messiah comes, both male and female will prophesy. Which means that both male and female will speak the word of God to the people of God. That's what prophecy is. The prophetic spirit of God will be poured out on male and female alike when Messiah comes. And that's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. Christian men and Christian women were out in the streets proclaiming God's word in all kinds of languages. It was a wild scene. The locals in Jerusalem thought the Christians were all drunk. Well, they were. They were drunk on the Holy Spirit. Both men and women preaching in the streets. And the Apostle Peter explains this phenomenon by pointing to the prophecy of Joel. And so, from the very beginning, women had a prominent place in the life of the church. A place they did not have in the synagogue. After Calvary, there was a huge step forward for women among the people of God. A step forward that, in fact, is a step backward. A step Resetting things to the way that they were before the fall when men and women were an equal pair, each in the image of God, free of dom- domination and free of struggle, the way God thinks meant things to be. And finally, milestone number five. We see the theological articulation of this principle in Paul's comment There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. These distinctions, of course, are so important in the fallen world. Race, class, gender. People in the fallen world want to know who and what you are because they want to stick you into some little pigeonhole in their little minds, depending on your race or your class or your gender, you belong to some little place that they've assigned to you. But Calvary changes that because Jesus defeats Satan and the curse and the consequence of sin is pushed back a bit. We're not in New Jerusalem yet, but the church is a place where there is no race or class or gender. We're all one. And that's the word of God. That's not the word of Dan. Now this new reality in the church, a reality which was completely different from what had existed in the synagogue or in the pagan world, This new reality that we see in the church leaves traces in this list of greetings that Paul offers at the end of his letter to the Romans. Paul mentions 26 people in the Roman church. He greets the most distinguished, the most honored, the most worthy in that church. 
And of those 26, nine are women. More than one-third. That's a fact that should make your jaws drop. I challenge you to find an equivalent situation in Roman history. It's not there. So let's take a quick look at the women who get a shout-out from the Apostle Paul. First is Phoebe. We read, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So Phoebe's not from the church in Rome. She's from the church in Sincrea, which is about six miles from Corinth. And most likely, she is the person who is carrying, physically carrying, this letter to the Romans. Which is why Paul puts her name in there first. And he commends her to the Roman church. He's saying, welcome her, take care of her, in the way that you would welcome and take care of me. Paul calls her his sister. We learn that she is a servant in the church in Sincrea. Other translations say a deacon in the church of Sincrea. And they do that because that's the word that Paul uses. Diakonon. After introducing her as a deacon from the church in Sincrea, Paul tells the Roman church to, quote, help her in whatever she might need from you. In other words, feed her, house her, put money into her purse. Why? Well, Paul tells us, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. In other words, this is a woman of substance who opened her purse and supported many people, including the Apostle Paul himself. The next woman Paul mentions is Prisca, one half of this dynamic husband and wife evangelism team, Prisca and Aquila. This couple are... At this point, part of the church in Rome, and Paul writes about them, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Prisca and Aquila are mentioned six times in Scripture. Paul calls them my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, which he, by which he means that they're missionaries. Missionaries like him to the Gentiles, which is why all of the churches of the Gentiles also give thanks for them. Paul tells us that Prisca and Aquila risk their necks to save his life. Wouldn't you like to hear more about that story? And finally, we learn that there was a church, a congregation meeting in the house of Prisca and Aquila. At the time that Paul is writing this letter, all of the churches are meeting in homes And the fact that Prisca and Aquila have a church meeting in their house is an indication of their leadership in the broader Roman church community. Prisca and Aquila, a husband-wife evangelism team traveling to distant cities to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, risking their lives to save Paul, living now in Rome where there is a congregation meeting in their house. The list of women Paul greets goes on. Mary, who has worked hard for you. Julia and the sister of Nerus. The beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Tryphania 
and Tryphosa workers in the Lord. And finally, the mother of Rufus, who has also been a mother to Paul. Maybe you've never heard of Rufus or his mother. But Rufus's father was Simon the Cyrenian, who you might remember was the man who carried the cross of Jesus when Jesus could no longer carry it. Think about that for a second. The woman that Paul is calling his mother is the wife of the man who carried the cross of Christ. Real people. Real lives. Real Christians living in Rome in the first century and nine of the outstanding people in the Roman church that Paul mentions are women. This mother we, this, this morning we pause and give thought to our mothers, women who have known us best and served us most. We recognize that the biblical view of women is far more exalted than the secular view. In God's design, a man and a woman come together and become one flesh. And out of that union which mirrors Christ's union with the church, a child is born. And women, not men, bear those children, carrying and protecting and feeding the growing child inside their own bodies. Pregnancy, of course, is only the beginning And not all mothers have been pregnant. Our mothers, whether they are biological or adoptive or just part of that cloud of friends and relatives who surround us, like the mother of Rufus to Paul, our mothers pour into us. They care for us. They protect us. They lead us. They guide us. Mothers lay down their needs to meet our needs. They worry about us and they fuss over us even when we are squirming to get away. There are lots of different kinds of human relations. But what's more languages or many images for God? He is a king. He is a judge. He is a shepherd. But the primary image of God that we see in the New Testament is that God is our father, that he is a parent. Kings are important, but what we really need are parents, fathers and mothers. And God calls himself a parent. Jesus uses the image of a mother hen to describe his own frantic love and care for wayward children. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Thank God for our mothers. Thank God for the women who have watched over us and cared for us and sacrificed for us. Not all of us have had good mothers. Not all of us have been good mothers. But still, we hold up mothers as a high ideal of how we should care. Not only for our own, but for all people. 
the elders of this church, they should mother you. They should fuss over you and worry about you when they don't see you in worship on a Sunday morning. Our deacons, they should mother you. They should set aside their own needs to take care of your needs all in the name of Christ. I know that Susan Kaler, Mother's Valley Christian School, sometimes I see Susan and I think of that woman in the Mother Goose rhyme. You know, the one who lived in a shoe and had more children than she knew what to do? 130 students, dozens of staff, and the whole operation run on a shoestring? It takes a mother's heart to pull all of that together. I think all of us have opportunities to mother people whom God has caused to cross our paths. The church is a great place to mother people and to be mothered. May we as Christians rightly honor women, not as the fallen world does, but as God intends May we as Christians see our mothers and wives and daughters as co-bearers of the image of God, as partners in God's vision of creation. May we as Christians always honor and support and defend and cherish our mothers. And may we see in God's tender care of us a godly model for human mothering. All glory be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, on this day we do remember and honor our mothers and we give you thanks for those mothers that you have given to us. We are grateful that you chose to give us life through them and that they received the gift of life from your hands and passed it on to us. We thank you for the sacrifices they have made in carrying us and in giving us birth. We thank you for the women who raised us, for the people who were mothers in our childhood, whether birth mothers or adopted mothers or stepmothers or older sisters or aunts or grandmothers. We thank you for all of these women who held us and fed us and cared for us. We pray that our lives may reflect the love that they showed us and that they would be pleased to be called our moms. We pray this morning for older moms whose children have grown and gone away. Grant them joy and satisfaction for a job well done. We pray for new moms experiencing changes they could not predict. Grant them rest and peace as they trust you for the future. We pray for pregnant moms who are waiting for the arrival of their children. Grant them patience and good counsel in the coming months. We pray for moms who face the demands of single parenthood. Give them strength and friends. We pray for moms who enjoy financial abundance. Grant them time to share with their families. And we pray for moms who raise their children in poverty. Grant them relief 
We pray for stepmoms. Give them patience and understanding and love. We pray for moms who are separated from their children. Grant them faith and hope. We pray for moms whose marriages are in crisis. Grant them support and insight. And we pray for moms who have lost children. Grant them comfort in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father God, for all of your goodness, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.